Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today's episode features a conversation with a dear friend of mine, Peter Bregman. So Peter is the founder of Bregman Partners, a boutique organization change consulting firm based in New York City. He is the author of three books. Uh, First one, Point B, A Short Guide to Leading a Big Change. The second one, the uh, Wall Street Journal bestseller, 18 Minutes, Find Your Focus, Manage Distraction, and Get the Right Things Done. And a new book coming out in February 2015 called Four Seconds, All the Time You Need to Stop Counterproductive Habits and Get the Results You Want. And in this conversation, we talk about four seconds. So just a little background um, on how I got to know Peter. Uh, So we overlapped by a couple of years uh, in college, and we had some mutual friends, and he was really the only person I knew in 1999 who was in business. (laughs) Almost everybody else I knew was in education or nonprofit or private sector, or but he was he was an entrepreneur. And when I had graduated from uh, graduate school with a PhD in health studies in 1999, I kind of thought that I would just go to corporations and help their employees be healthier and they would pay me lots of money. And it quickly turned out that was not the case. So I reached out to Peter and he kind of explained to me a little bit about the way the business world worked. And after some conversations and working on some writing back and forth, Peter called me up one day and said, hey, how would you like to be my director of marketing? And I said, sure, sounds like fun. What's marketing? And Peter said, I don't know, but we're both smart. We'll figure it out. And that really was my introduction to the world of business. And Peter has been a guide, a mentor, a door opener for me ever since. And so um, when I have a chance to help him promote his stuff, um, I, I jump at the chance. It's just, uh, it just feels like karma coming around, giving me a chance to give back to this man who's given me so much. So enjoy the conversation about four seconds. All right. So uh, welcome, Peter. Thank you, Howie. So I'm excited. I've just been reading through the manuscript of your third book. And this one, you know, we've been talking about it a long time, and I've been giving you various thoughts and suggestions about a title, and none of them were quite right. But when I heard what the title was, I suddenly just got how perfect it was. And the title is Four Seconds. So um, what, what, what's, what's four seconds? What does that refer to? It refers to the amount of time it takes to take a single deep breath. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, research that's out there that says, you know, in order to change a bad habit, you need 21 days or six years or whatever it is that you need in order to change a bad habit. And, and in my experience, um, that has actually been demotivational to me and also not true. And, you know, what I found is that it actually takes four seconds for me to stop myself from doing something that I know is a destructive habit or a bad choice, the wrong thing, something that's not going to get me where I want, and to make a different kind of choice. That as long as I could pause long enough to take a deep breath, I could change what I'm about to do. And that's what it takes to change a bad habit is to make a different choice in the moment, one choice at a time. And so four seconds is both the amount of time it takes to take a deep breath and also the amount of time it takes to make better decisions and choices that cumulatively give you a better, more powerful life. Great. So let's, let's, let's unpack the four seconds in a little bit. But right now, can you... Um, define uh, a productive or unproductive habit? Because at the very beginning, you talk about changing unproductive habits to productive ones. So you're not talking about things like, um, you know, batching your emails or, or other, you're, you're talking about something very specific, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking, you know, I mean, you could argue that, um, yes, uh, responding to email the way we respond to email is a knee-jerk reaction that's actually a pretty bad habit. And that, and that, so in some ways, I could also be talking about that. But I'm, I'm really talking about the things that we do day in, day out that don't get us where we want to go. So I want a really great relationship with you. And, and let's say, I know this would never happen, but let's say 
you know, we have a phone call and you call me 10 minutes late. And now I'm kind of pissed off because, <laughs> you know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I have a busy schedule and somehow deep in my head, I feel not as respected. And so I, you know, end up uh, saying something that is, you know, not particularly nice to you or that, that kind of sets you off. And then, you know, we're both a little annoyed with each other now. And then we start to have a conversation and that doesn't go well. And ultimately, my objective of having a great relationship with you gets hijacked by my own poor response to a situation that's completely intuitive and totally counterproductive. And so it's a completely intuitive reaction for me to go, hey, why are you late? And on the other hand, it doesn't work at all. And by the way, for someone who does come late to things, they'll also, you know, leave you with a bunch of feelings to go, well, Peter, you weren't on time all the time. And now we're in a really counterproductive conversation. And neither of us want that. What we both want is to have a really great talk. What we both want is to have a really tight relationship. And I see this all the time in so many ways. Leaders who step up and say, you know, what they think comes to them in the moment but isn't what people in their organizations need to hear. You know, someone's having a hard time. Someone fails at something. Uh, someone creates a presentation that doesn't look like it's supposed to look. And part of the reason they do that is because they're already kind of uh, scared of showing you something and not wanting to up and really wanting to impress you. And you get mad at them and respond by saying, you know, what kind of work is this? Is this the right kind of work? And, and then they get even more scared and their next presentation is even worse. And it just spirals to a place where, um, you know, where their performance just dips and you get more and more annoyed until they end up leaving the organization. And there's so many different examples of knee jerk reactions we have that we think are right in the moment, but actually work counter to what we're trying to get to. And, and four seconds is really about subverting those in very simple ways because it's actually quite simple to subvert them. But it subvert them in very simple ways that get us to where we want to go. So, so last night I was watching the movie uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with my son. You remember it? Yes. So there, there's a scene where the Steve Martin came Now, out. not only do I remember it, but thanks to you, we've both dated ourselves. <laughs> so uh, there, there's a scene where the um, Steve Martin character is taken from the airport to the to the rental bay where he's going to pick up his car and there's no car in the spot where his key says the car should be and he runs back he can't, he can't make the shuttle bus he has to cross the highway he crosses the runway and he gets to the counter and there's this very sort of sweet person on the phone and instead of just saying hello can you help me he proceeds to insult her he uses the f word about 15 times in a row and he ends up not getting what he wants. Is that kind of what you're talking about, you know, writ large, that we're, we're just taking care of our own momentary emotional needs rather than looking at the big picture? Yeah, I think we wouldn't even know that that's what we're doing because we would talk about it with our friends to go, could you believe it? That car rental guy, this is what he did. And he was so unprofessional. And, and I don't know that I'm reacting to my momentary emotional need. I just think I'm right. And, you know, most of us think that we're just right. But the reality is, yeah. And I think we do it in very subtle ways. So, for example, you know, I, I opened the book with a story about being late. I guess this is a theme in this conversation. Um, I opened the book with a story about being late with, um, with Eleanor, my wife. And my gut reaction is to apologize, but what I call sort of apologize and justify, right, is to apologize and immediately explain why I was late. And, you know, I think pretty much all of us have that same response, right? Which is that we, we want to tell the person, look, there was a good reason why I was late. But all that did was explain to her that whatever reason I was late was more important than she was. And so I think I'm doing the thing. It's not even like a knee-jerk emotional reaction. It's just a normal thing we do, which is give someone an excuse for something that we've done wrong. But in reality in almost every case, giving someone an excuse as to why something has gone wrong or why you've done something wrong is usually has the, usually has the opposite uh, impact that you intend, right? It only upsets them. Now they think that not only are you untrustworthy, 
but you don't own up to your mistakes, so you're not accountable. And it's, um, it's so it's, it's not always, you know, these situations where our emotions might get the better of us and we get angry or mad. It's even these subtle responses. I'll give you another example, Howie, which is that, you know, and there's a story of this in the book where um, a, uh, uh, a failure, like a sports failure. So this, this girl um, failed in a swim meet and everybody was giving her, you know, was saying exactly what we say when people fail. What do you say when someone fails generally? What's the gut response? My gut response would be, well, better luck next time. You could, you'll try harder. Uh, yeah, so you sort of say, exactly. And that's, that's my gut response also, you know, to kind of say, you know, don't worry about it or, you know, there will be other races or, um, or you know, everybody has some of these or next time you'll focus more, you know, because I am uncomfortable with their, discom- you know, with their failure because I want them to feel good. I don't want them to be upset. I'm not actually honestly uncomfortable with their failure. I'm uncomfortable with um, their sadness. I'm uncomfortable with their, um, uh, you know, their reaction to their own failure. In fact, every time we tell them, oh, you know, don't worry about it, or, you know, you, you hear this all the time with people who've just broken up, you know, there will be lots of other men. Anyone else would be lucky to have you. We're trying to make them feel better. And we're trying to make them feel better because we are uncomfortable with them not feeling good. But when we're trying to make them feel better, all we're doing is making them feel worse because we're counteracting their feelings. They're saying, I'm sad. And we're saying, don't be sad. And they're saying, but I am sad because this bad thing has happened to me. And we're saying, don't worry, everything will be better. And you're kind of arguing with them at the moment at which what they really need isn't an argument, but they need understanding. They need empathy. They need to feel like you, they need to feel understood. But we're trying to show them that we understand them. But when we try to show them that we understand them, we're arguing with them and showing them the exact opposite, that we don't understand. So a much better response in a knee-jerk you know, way is to not try to make them feel better at all. Just let them know that we're with them and that we know that they feel badly. And it's totally counterintuitive. If someone's sad, to just sit with them and say, no, it really sucks. And, uh, and I've got nothing else to say except to suck. And I'm with you. And I hear how sad you are. Right? And that's what makes them able to feel their emotion in a way that they can then move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a totally counterintuitive response, but it's much more productive than our typical response. And in order to choose that response, you need two things. You need first to take a deep breath and resist the urge to do what you would normally do. That's step one. And step two is you need to choose your new response. You know, you need to choose a different way of responding that might um, be more effective, even if it's counterproductive. And what, what I do in four seconds is I do both. So in four seconds, I share both the, um, the, the, you know, this tactic of taking a deep breath and pausing before you make a choice that's not the best choice. And then the second thing is um, I, I offer all sorts of alternatives, just like I did there, which is these alternatives to say, you know, if your gut response is to try to make them feel better, pause before you do that, take the deep breath, here's a better way to respond that will have the impact you're trying to have. Mm-hmm. Great. So I'm, I'm hearing two uh, voices of argument in my head around this approach. One, one is the voice of kind of, you know, entrepreneurial go-getter society, which says always be thinking positive, always be encouraging. So if someone does fail, you want to make sure that they learn from it and they do better next time. And you don't want to be surrounded by Debbie Downers who are just encouraging you to wallow. And, and the second argument is, so you're, you're kind of saying that we shouldn't trust ourselves, that, that our, our knee-jerk reactions are almost always going to get us into trouble. So maybe let, let's start with the second one. What, what would you say to, to someone who says, like, I, I just don't like to second guess. I just want to, you know, just say the thing and, and move on unencumbered. You know, it's actually a great comment, Howie. And, you know, I go back and forth between these two things, too. 
Because on the one hand, I do say, trust your impulses. I want people trusting impulses. But in order to do that, I feel like you really have to be self-aware to know where those impulses are coming from. So is your impulse coming from their need or is your impulse coming from your need? So if I have an impulse and my impulse is to make you feel better, am I doing that for me or am I doing that for you? And if I'm doing that for me, which is where so many of us learn our impulses, where so many of us have our gut reactions come from places that serve us. And it's not because we're selfish. It's just because that's what we've learned. I mean, that's sort of what we know. And, and if that's the case, then it's not going to have the impact we want because, I mean, it will in terms of protecting ourselves. But I would argue that, you know, as we get older, those might have been good things when we were younger. But as, as we have more capability, that we're not wanting to respond in ways that just protect ourselves. We're wanting to respond to people in ways that are effective in the situations at building relationships, at connecting with others, at, at serving, serving them for sort of higher purposes. And it, at that point, I think I'm less worried about what's going to make me feel comfortable in this situation, which is what our gut response to their failure is. And instead of that, what's going to, um, what's going to serve them and deepen my connection with them and, uh, you know, and be helpful in the situation. And so, um, so I think as long as we have done enough sort of work on ourselves to know the difference between a response that's helping me and a response that's helping you, then, um, then sure, follow your impulse. If you're not sure, then take four seconds and take a deep breath and ask yourself the question, is what I'm about to say for me or is what I'm about to say for them? And if it's really for them, then follow that impulse. And if it's for you, then second guess it and think, is there something better I can do? And that's what the solutions that I try to provide in four seconds are, are geared to do, is they're geared towards um, you know, offering solutions that, in effect, uh, serve the person that you're connecting with and serve to deepen your connection with them, to strengthen your leadership in a group like those are the things that I'm most interested in helping people to do. Right. And, and, and you know, from, from knowing you and your work and, and having been very close to it for a long time, it's not really a dichotomy between helping yourself and helping someone else. The, 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 the times when you choose the relationship, 99 times out of 100, that's a strategic choice for your own happiness and success as well. Yes, for sure. That's for sure. And, you know, and it does require more of us. I mean, it does require that we be more capable in some ways so that, you know, so that we can make that choice. Those are hard choices to make, but we're better leaders and better people, better husbands, better parents, better wives, better um, friends for, for, for doing it. So, so what about this other point that, you know, we, we shouldn't wallow in negativity. We should always be looking on, for the positive. So, you know, so, so you're, you're saying that in these four seconds, we might have to come face to face with feelings that don't feel good. We have to, we have to live in a little bit of discomfort. Why is right. that? Yeah. Well, you know, my view of, you know, my view is that negativity um, either exists or it doesn't exist. Meaning, you know, if I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling something like that, then, um, then that's the reality. That's the truth. And I could try to pretend that I don't feel it, but pretending that I don't feel it doesn't make it go away. Pretending I don't feel it just puts it deep down somewhere so that it comes out in some insidious way, kind of leaks out in a way that, that the negativity uh, uh, ultimately hurts me and other people at the wrong time. So this so is like, this is I, like putting, putting black duct tape over the check engine light. Yes, exactly. You could ignore it, that it exists, but the engine at some point is still going to just stop. Okay. And so, you know, I think that our, uh, it, it's, it's, 
people are most successful when they're able to deal with reality as it stands. And that takes emotional courage. You know, a lot of what I have been teaching over the last few years that this book really plays with is this idea of emotional courage. Now, do I have the courage to see reality for what it is and to take the actions that may not be particularly comfortable to me in the moment, but ultimately serve to help me make the impact that I intend to make in the world? And, you know, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a challenge. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it's sort of what leadership calls us to do, and it's what being a um, good friend and a connected partner and a uh, successful parent and all those kinds of things calls us to do. You know, I mean, it's it's it, those are that's the challenge that we face in life. So. I had a recent experience, I guess, a couple of days ago with with needing emotional courage, and it was very humbling. So I was out in a, running some errands with my son, and he did something, and I said to him, in a, in a light way, oh, don't be an idiot. And as we got in the car to drive to the next thing, I could feel the heaviness, like that, like he had taken that in, and he was not happy about right. it. Right. And so for like forty five seconds, I was on the verge of saying. I'm really sorry I said you were an idiot, but it felt like like I was going to step off the curve into traffic. <laughs> you know, like I, I almost did it, and it was almost out, and it was almost out, and finally it was almost out so many times that I felt like, well, it's never going to come out. I might as well just, you know, let him forget about it. <laughs> and finally I just blurted it. And he, was, he turned to me, he was like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> And, and, then, and then, we, then we had a great time, but I, I was just struck by how hard it was to say, to apologize to my 15-year-old son. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think apologies, for some reason, I mean, I think you're on to something, because I think it's, it's among the hardest things to do, and I don't entirely know why. Like, I... But I find exactly the same thing. Like, there's something about admitting that we're wrong. There's something about, I don't know what it is exactly, but it's very hard. But that feeling that you're describing is exactly the feeling of emotional courage. Like, do I really say this thing right now? And, and, and actually, let's unpack that for a second. What do you think was pushing the apology down back inside? What was... Um, encouraging you to not apologize to yourself? Oh, there was, well, one thing was I didn't want to let, let him off the hook for the idiotic thing he had done. <laughs> like, you know, right. So you don't want to send him the wrong message. Yeah. Like, that like he was okay doing the thing. But, but it was, but that was, that's a rationalization. Cause, right. cause it was a way. It, cause you also don't want to send him the message that you think he's an idiot. Right. And I don't want to send him the message that your dad is above apologizing. I, I want to send him the message right. that, that grownups apologize. And yet there was something, you know, I was just ashamed. I was ashamed of the flip way it had come out. And, and I've noticed, you know, in the past three weeks, I've said a, maybe half a dozen things that I immediately wanted to take back. And most of them I just didn't. I just let, well, well, that's out there. It's like, you know, I farted in public and there's nothing I can do about it. But, but it was it's it, it was a sort of a growing sense of being ashamed. Like I'll t I'll tell you the worst one was we were uh, Elon and I were out to dinner with with some some friends and there were like it was a family two grown ups and three kids and the youngest one was maybe eight or nine and I was chatting with Elon about something and I made a joke, basically pretending that I had been a heroin addict. <laughs> like it's a sort of like father son thing that we can do. But doing it in front of this other family was so inappropriate. And the dad called me out on it. He said, hey, we don't joke about this. And I just, I turned red. And I just sort of mumbled something. Cause, but I just, you know, I carried that around for days and days. Like, how could you say something so stupid and insensitive in front of other people? And that's, that's what made me not want to apologize, I think, is that I didn't want to have to admit that I'd done another one. Right. Right. And how did you feel when you apologized? Oh, it was, it was such a relief to know that I could get it out. Right. And to have him respond. You don't know how he would respond, but, but you know, he, your son responded very beautifully. And, 
Um, and I think that's right. I think we don't apologize because of how we'll feel. I think we don't apologize because we, um, because we rationalize the same way you rationalize. If I'm a leader in an organization and I go, well, if I apologize for that comment telling that guy he did something idiotic, he's going to think he can do that thing. And then I'm lowering my standards for the organization. And then everyone's going to start doing that. And then, then we'll go bankrupt and then I'll be out of a job. And they sort of do that and they go, no, I'm just going to leave it there. And some of it's rationalization, some of it's fear, but ultimately I've never known someone to perform poorly because a leader backed off of a name calling scenario. (laughs) Like I just haven't seen it. Like I've only seen them perform better because what you do when you apologize in that way is you develop a deeper connection to that person. And when you have a deeper connection, you want to perform more. So it's, it's counterintuitive because we have to not protect ourselves in that moment. And when we don't, and we have a better choice available to us and we make it, we find that the results we get are much stronger. So can we talk about some of the specific uh, chapters in the book? Because it's not just sure. about sort of the in, in, interpersonal stuff that we've been, we've been focusing on so far. So wh- wh- one thing you write about qu- quite early is that meditation can make you more productive. Can you talk a little right. bit about how, how and why? So the challenge of meditation which I think is more and more and more challenging in our society, is the challenge of idleness, right? It's the challenge in some ways of doing nothing. And we don't know, I'll speak for myself, I have a very hard time doing nothing anymore because there's so much to do. You know, as I said, with 18 minutes with my first book, there's never been a time in which there is so much to do, so many ways to connect with us, so many things on our to-do list. And at a time like this, who could sit and do nothing for 10 minutes? Like that just seems like a luxury beyond recognition. And because of that, it's an incredibly useful practice because what we need to do is build our muscle of, of, you know, some could call it discipline or willpower, but build our muscle to resist temptation. But ultimately, temptation is what leads us to call someone an idiot because we're feeling uncomfortable or we're angry or we're, so we just do the thing that we want to do. And ultimately the task, our task in becoming more capable, more powerful leaders, more productive human beings is to make smarter choices. Well, in order to make smarter choices, we have to resist the temptation of following through on the choices that are intuitive, but counterproductive. And so in order to do that, we need to know and become familiar with in our bodies and increase our skill in making uh, decisions that don't follow the temptation. We need to be able to resist temptation. So how do you do that? When you're sitting for five or 10 minutes in meditation, there's going to be a million things that come to your head. You're going to get ideas. You're going to want to get up. You're going to want to look at your watch. And like, seriously, my alarm hasn't beeped yet. It hasn't been 10 minutes. Are you kidding? And all these things are going to happen. And yet the only thing you can do is sit. If you committed to sit for 10 minutes, you sit for 10 minutes and you breathe and you do nothing. So on the one hand, by the way, I should say, it's an incredibly beautiful practice to do nothing in this world of never stop doing things uh, for 10 minutes. But on another level, you're actually building a muscle, which is the ability to resist the desire to act. You're also learning to watch what happens in your mind. So meditation is very much about breathing, following your breath, and letting things come in your mind and go. And we are used to latching on to the first thing that comes into our mind and following. And what meditation teaches us to do is to let that go, to loosen our grasp on our mind's voice. And when we loosen our grasp on our mind's voice, we yet again become more able to make choices that are sort of smart on the moment. And we also see everything that's going on in our mind. So I could see that my desire to tell you, oh, don't worry, you'll do better next time, comes from my own discomfort. And I can see it when I've watched that happen in my mind. And that awareness that I grow from meditation is incredibly useful 
in discerning whether the next move is going to be one for my benefit or for your benefit. Ultimately, as people and as leaders, we want to act in the world in ways that benefit the people around us. But that counterintuitively is what's going to get us what we want. So how do you know that your acting can benefit other people? You pause, you take a breath, you ask yourself the question, and you discern and distinguish between the what you're doing to make yourself feel better, like put someone down, which make everybody laugh, and then you feel better yourself, or what you're doing for their benefit, which is to possibly support what they've said or the risk they've taken, or to just be silent and let it sit there as opposed to trying to make yourself feel better. Right. So one of the most... Um powerful pieces of social science research probably ever is, you know, Walter Michel and the marshmallow test where he took like those little kids and the ones who could resist the temptation for five or 10 minutes to get a second marshmallow when he followed them for decades, found that almost everything in their lives was better than the group that that didn't. And it sounds like what you're saying is that meditation is maybe not the only, but certainly a really good and one of the best gyms to strengthen that muscle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when I first learned meditation, the, the the way it was taught to me was the goal is to empty your mind. And that was the right. most disempowering thing I ever heard. It sounds like you're saying the goal is not to empty your mind, but to resist all the things, the, the, the scratching the itches, getting up, opening your eyes, checking your watch, writing down the title for your next book. It's it's. It's that's the stuff of of the the mental weightlifting, and not just a uh, you know an ocean of 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 blue with no distractions in sight. Yeah, and I would say resist is the first step, and then I would almost say enjoy. Like you're you're gonna your mind is actually a pretty interesting place. Chances are, and you probably haven't just watched it for a while, and so you know I, I my mind is very rarely empty. And when it's not, it's doing a bunch of stuff. And um, it's in my ability to um, watch it without being subject to it that gives me power to act by choice in the world. And so the you know, urge to just do whatever it says, yell now, uh, go check your email. Uh, are you sure that's not a text you should be looking at? I mean, whatever it's telling me to do, oftentimes I just do. And the ability to watch it, I mean, now, while I'm not meditating and it says, check your email, I could sort of chuckle and go, yeah, nice try. I think I'm just going to stay bored for a little while and see what that feels like. And I, I become a more active participant in my life as opposed to a slave to the sort of various urges that my mind propels me towards. So in, in one of the chapters, you talk about the trick to following through on a commitment, something you're motivated to do, but then later you're trying to talk yourself out of it, is don't listen to your mind. So that seems very closely linked to the med- practice of meditation. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think it's what I've said, which is that the, um, uh, the, the urge to do, to sort of, follow suit. I mean, it's interesting because we see this in cultures also, right? I mean, we see in cultures and organizational cultures where you just do what everybody else does. And, you know, at its worst, you you could look at the things that soldiers said in World War II and the Nazis and the Holocaust, and they said, I was just following orders. Well, the truth is, you know, I, I resisted that forever because I thought it was just a poor way to absolve their uh, guilt. The reality is most of us are just walking around our lives following orders. And we're either following orders of the cultures we live in or we're following orders of the, uh, the, what our minds are telling us to do or the habits that we've developed. And I'm not absolving Nazis of anything that they've done. I just want to be clear about that in case we get any comments related to that. Um, I do think that we spend a lot of our lives in that same place and that I want to free us from that. And I certainly want to free myself from that. And I want to help other people free, other people free themselves from this sort of gut instinct to follow orders and to separate themselves. You know, when you're angry, do you have to yell? When you're, you know, sad, do you have to blame? You know, are these necessarily 
forced responses to those emotions, or can the emotion stand on its own and you could feel the anger and then make a choice about what to do? And I would argue that we have much more power when we're able to do that. So, so yeah, I would say, you know, meditation certainly helps us to do that. And, and that's what the book is for. I mean, the book helps us. Four Seconds is specifically about reclaiming power in your life to make the kinds of choices that serve you and the people around you. Right. There's, no, there's nowhere in there where you're saying, don't do the unproductive habits. You're, you're just saying, choose to. Right. You, you right. Give yourself the space to decide what's best for you. You know, someday you want to indulge it. Go ahead, but at least be free to to make the decision rather than the programming that maybe was was installed in you before you could even talk. Exactly. So, Peter, one of the chapters in the book that really touched me was about ritual. And I'd love you to talk about what role ritual can play and why we would even want to use it in our lives and in our work? It's a great question because ritual slows us down. And, and at a time when we're moving so fast, and most of us, uh, most people that I know are moving faster, honestly, faster than we're capable of. I mean, I think I've been moving faster than I'm capable of. And as a result, I make mistakes. As a result, I'm not really fully present. Uh, you know, I, when I wrote 18 Minutes, which was the book that preceded Four Seconds, um, it was really to help solve that problem. I wrote against multitasking, against the idea that, you know, you can really do more than one thing at a time and, and um, how to really focus ourselves in a way that we will be most productive uh, uh, and achieve the most by being um, uh, most focused, that um, I find it hard to do even, right? Even though I've written that book, I find it hard to do. And I find it hard to do because there are so many demands on my life. There are so many interesting things I want to work on, focus on, get accomplished. And in the process of putting all of the stuff on my plate, I end up doing too many things at once. I end up not really focusing on what it is that I need to focus on. I end up working super, super hard, super, super fast, and, and not really feeling as present to the work that I'm doing or the people who I'm with as I would like to, uh, as I would like to be. And so, so um, ritual is a way of addressing that. When you ritualize something, you're marking it. You're making a choice to say, I'm going to pause for a moment and, and bring a level of respect to the activity that I'm about to do. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm about to get on a phone call with Howie and talk about four seconds and we're going to interview. Let me pause and, and feel into it for a second and, and really set myself up both physically and mentally to be very present for this phone call, you know, and it might be literally lighting a candle or it might be as simple as just sitting and taking a deep breath, that four second deep breath, taking a deep breath and landing where I can really set my attention to be present to this phone call, to your questions, to our relationship. And in doing that, I, I bring, as I said, like a certain level of respect to the next activity that I'm going to do. And that means that I'm not going to do five things at once. You know, I'm not typing out an email at the same time as I'm having this conversation with you. And to me already, that feels better, meaning I feel more connected and I'm going to feel better about this phone call, about this interview. I'm going to feel better about it afterwards because I know that I've really sort of been present to it. And when you ritualize something, what you're doing is you're cordoning off the time and the space that says, I am you know, bringing a certain sacred focus and presence to what I'm about to do. And we need that so badly in this life of rushing around doing 20 things at once. 
And so I think there's tremendous power in the impact that you can make in your relationships, the impact that you can make in your conversations, in the goals that you're trying to achieve when you create a bit of a ritual around what you're about to do and then focus on it fully with great respect. So for, for me, when I think of that, I think about, um, you know, religion, which is, I guess, where a lot of our ideas of ritual come from. And the idea that it's not just about when you're in your house of worship praying or when you're at your altar at home. It's that 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 kind of uh, sensibility, the big picture, your values should infuse every moment of your life. And I know for myself, there are so many moments of my life that I'm just trying to get through so that I can get to the next moment. Is that, is that really what you're talking about? Kind of tying that moment to what you really deeply care about on what you, what you want to think about, uh, you know, positively on your deathbed? Precisely. And I love what you said, which is so much of what we do in one moment is just getting to the next moment. And we string a number of these moments together, always focused on the next moment, and we lose our ability to impact the moment. And this is actually, I'm going to say, a leadership issue, meaning I think as leaders, people when, you know, and and I define leader broadly, meaning I think that, you know, anybody from a student to a CEO can can show their leadership. And, And leadership is shown when you step powerfully uh, and independently into the world in a way that you make decisions, you take actions, you relate to other people or to activities that bring your full self into it in a way that may be different than what other people are doing. And that, and that brings a sense of power that other people look at and then they choose to follow. And that um, we cannot lead from a place of rushing from one moment to the next. We lose all of our power in the world when we're not focused on the thing that we're doing in that moment. I was actually at my daughter's school today, and I was sitting and talking with some parents, and there was this one particular parent I was talking to who I realized afterwards the entire conversation we had never actually looked at me. What she was doing was scanning the room. People were coming in and out of the door, and she was sort of scanning the room, almost like a nervous animal, right, looking to see what might be coming. But she was doing it in a way to see, like, who else was there that she might want to talk to. And I was sitting there talking to her, and I, I, it was, I didn't notice it at first. It was just this disturbing feeling, like I'm talking to someone who's not there. And it was only afterwards when I started to analyze that that I realized, huh, she's not looking at me. You know, she's thinking maybe someone better is going to come along to talk to. And, you know, or maybe not even better, maybe just someone else, or maybe it's just hard for her to be present. And I think that our leadership gets weakened when we can't stand grounded on our two feet in the place that we're at in the conversation that we're having. And I think that rituals it could even be something, you know, a ritual that you say in your head. It could be standing there in your head, taking that four-second deep breath and saying, I'm here having this conversation with this person, and this is what I'm choosing to do right now. That itself could be a ritual. It could be a ritual that says, well, before you talk to someone, take a four-second deep breath. Take a deep breath and commit to talking to them until you're done talking with them. I mean, this might seem silly or quick or... But, it, but try it, because it makes all of the difference if you can really show up as a, as in, in the present tense, focused on what you're focusing on, that your leadership uh, ends up uh, aggrandizing. It ends up building a tremendous amounts of power because people feel that you are there. And in a world where fewer and fewer people are there in the moment, your leadership will stand out even more so by really just being as simple as being present. Mm. I'm, I'm remembering right now um, a bunch of workshops I did when I was a new teacher. And the, the workshop leader was this guy named David Mallory, who I guess was in his late 60s, early 70s. And he would take four or 500 young teachers, none of, us, none of whom knew each other, and almost instantly we became better people from being in the auditorium with him. And I remember talking to one of the staff at the conference center where he used to run these events. And they said, these are our favorite events because everyone is so nice to us. 
because I don't know where he gets he, where he gets all these nice people from. And I, I remember thinking, like, you know, probably like last week, I was like bitching at a waiter somewhere else. It's like he wasn't attracting nice people. He was he was emanating leadership, and the, and the way he was doing it was precisely that. Is you got the you got the feeling you, you knew that this was the most important thing in the world for him to be doing at that moment. He wasn't distracted. He wasn't gazing at his watch. He, he was simply being there, facilitating our growth. And, and I'll, I'll never forget how powerful that was for all of us. I love that. I love that. And the truth is that we all know when we are in the presence of those people. We know it. Like, there are people around whom I am happier. They just make me feel good. And it's not because they're complimenting me or saying something, you know, nice. I mean, it's not, it's not cheap. There's depth to it. And the depth is they bring themselves to a situation where you just like them and want to be around them. And, and, and that's really powerful. And that's leadership. I was just having a conversation with a friend in which we were we were having a, a battle of definitions of love. So we each had a definition that we'd read recently and liked. And uh, his was love is seeing people as they really are. And mine was love is uh, joyful attention. And I think both both of those are um, are present in in your idea of, of, of ritual and just taking the time. To, to do a little something, say a little something that reminds you that this is the moment. Right. I, that's absolutely right. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's this question, and I think we're in a little bit of a battle in our culture about um, whether, I don't even think we're in the battle. I think that the, the wrong side has been winning, um, which is this distinction between, you know, I am what I do versus I am who I am, right? The, this distinction between, um, you know, my greatness comes from what I accomplish versus my greatness comes from, from just, you know, who I am as a person. And I believe that it, it, it shouldn't be a conflict, meaning it shouldn't be a choice, that when you really come from the solid place of, of who I am, of being... You know, a powerful person of taking that deep breath, of making a strategic and intentional choice about what you're going to do in the moment, about being in that moment, that, that leads you to take really powerful, impactful action. You know, and ultimately, what we want to do is close the gap between what we intend and how we impact, right? What we intend to do and how that intention comes through in, uh, in an action that achieves our intention. Um, it, it, that almost never happens if we are unconsciously quickly moving through life because that's when we make the wrong knee-jerk uh, choices. That's when we get ourselves into the same trouble we've always gotten ourselves into. And so, you know, the power of four seconds is the power of take a, taking a breath, landing where you are and saying, you know, who am I in this moment and what action comes out of that place? And those are always more powerful actions. Right. So, which brings me to, I guess, my, my last question, which is about a, another uh, great, really impactful chapter. And it was one, uh, I was there when you write about it. You're talking about, you tell a story about um, your wedding and the concept of, whether you're experiencing something or making it into a performance. And, you know, you and I are both fairly public in a lot of the work we do. And I know for myself, there's always a temptation to, you know, to, to show who I am by, by doing as opposed to, you know, there might be a gap between the doing and the being. And I think that's what you were talking about in, in raising that distinction between experience and performance. Could you just tell the story, the wedding story, and then kind of what, what it means for you? Sure. I, I was, um, uh, we were, Eleanor and I were getting married, uh, actually in Savannah, Georgia, um, many years ago, maybe not that many, year 2000. And we, um, and really like, at least from the rehearsal, we were at the rehearsal uh, of the wedding and nothing really was going right. The rabbi wasn't there. The, 
um, there were there were sort of a number of complications that were um, actually neither the rabbi, if I'm remembering correctly, neither the rabbi nor the nor the cantor, none of the people that were going to marry into were there, and uh, and and things just felt like they were out of control, and and um, the Sue Ann Steffi Ma, who was um, Eleanor's boss at the time, who was also an Episcopalian or maybe Methodist, I might be getting this wrong, um, minister. Uh, I can't remember exactly which, but she was, let's, let's at least say minister, because that I know for sure. Um, she was there, and our wedding was not co-officiated. Uh, Eleanor is Christian, and I'm Jewish. And so there was a lot of tension. There was the um, different family members who felt different things about an interfaith wedding, and there were a lot of issues. And so there was a lot of stress and a lot of tension and a lot of things that were not going on, uh, that were not going uh, the way we had expected it to go. And, uh, and, and we needed someone to lead us through the rehearsal. And um, Sue Ann offered, uh, who had done many weddings, Sue Ann offered to uh, lead us through the rehearsal of the wedding. And um, one by one, things started to fall into place, including the fact that you know, whereas there was not a minister who would be marrying us, now we had a minister by happenstance who was going to be doing the rehearsal, which um, allowed Eleanor's side of the family to really feel like there was some representation and some connection to the Christian faith. So piece by piece, the, the problems that were happening were unintended. From a performance perspective, they were not at all what we had wanted or what we had planned. But but they were, um, but but things were falling into place in a more beautiful way than they would have had they come as they were planned. And I just still remember that Sue Ann's uh, um, sort of short little homily to us or advice to us was that um, that everything everything in life is is an experience, and if you feel fully the, the and enjoy the moment of what that is then there's no good or bad to it, that it's just fully an experience. And when we get married, on the date that we actually get married, where, by the way, I cried at my own wedding and, and, and I, you know, things didn't go exactly as I was thinking they would. Um, but it's, it's not a performance. Like, we're not here to perform. And that when you, when you realize that for everything that that's true, that for everything that you do, when you stand up in front of a room and you're presenting, when I give a speech, when I'm dealing with um, difficult executives or, you know, uh, in, a, in a strategy offsite with um, taking undiscussables and putting them on the table and getting senior leaders to discuss them, when I'm doing all of this, it's very tempting to fall into the role of performer, of you know, I've got to do really well. I've got to get good grades. I've got to look good. They're paying me a lot of money. I really better deliver. And that kind of thinking is precisely the kind of thinking that gets us completely caught up in, um, in ourselves and in our stress and in our stiffness, right? Because when I'm performing and I think it really makes a difference, I'm going to try to put my best self out there in a way that actually constricts how I behave. And when I pause and I say, you know, everything's an experience, I always think I look outside and I see the weather uh, every day. And it's interesting because I never have judgment about the weather. I never think the weather is good or bad. First of all, because I know I have absolutely no power to change it. And second of all, because whether it's raining or snowing or sunny, it's always kind of interesting to look outside and see what the weather pattern is doing to the outside world. I've always enjoyed that. I've not looked at the weather and said like, oh no, it's a rainy day. What a bummer. I, I look at it and I sort of notice the rain falling on the trees or the buildings or the window and the sounds that it makes. And I just kind of enjoy the weather, whatever it is. And imagine if we went through life literally like that, enjoying each piece of the day, each person, each in like whatever way they showed up and in whatever way it showed up. And that how much more relaxed we would be if we didn't feel like what we were having to do is to perform in a certain way or other people needed to perform in a certain way. 
but that we were living with the experience of life and life as an experience. And so the more I brought that mentality, the more willing I was to take risks. And that's, in the end, the key to all leadership is your willingness to take risks. If you're willing to take risks, you're willing to try new things, anything can be possible. And it's when we feel like life is an experience that we're willing to do that. When we feel like life is a performance, we're not willing to take risks because we don't want to perform poorly. But if life is an experience, if the wedding really is about not performing for the crowd that has assembled around us, but to experience getting married, then nothing is wrong and I can take all sorts of risks and I can allow myself to cry at my own wedding, right? Which to this day, 15 years later, I still feel kind of good about, right? Because I really fully felt the emotion of that massively huge day. And I allowed myself to fully feel it. And, and as a result, by the way, what, uh, something that I wouldn't have done in that moment, which is sort of allowed myself to cry, um, it, I, I would have been, you know, like the strong, like I would have stood there, I would have performed really beautifully. And, and it would not have had made the same impact even on the people around me. Even if my goal was to perform for the people around me, trying to perform for them would not have had the same powerful impact on them as it does when I'm just experiencing it and feeling whatever it is that I'm feeling. Right. And, and hearing your, uh, your recollection of it, I can hear that you were actually present for the event. You know, I think for, for my wedding, I was mostly, I'm mostly remembering it through video and photographs. Like, I don't feel like I was yeah, there. It, it's an interesting point. Like, I hadn't really thought about it, but I have such a strong emotional memory of that day and of what it felt like to be up there. And probably the strongest recollection I have is that moment, which was so real and so full and a little scary for me. Like I remember being up there. So it's really an interesting observation, Harry, because it's very, very true that that's sort of what I remember. Yeah. Well, you know, and from, from my perspective, uh, as someone who spends a lot of time trying to help people be healthy, you know, one of the goals of health is to live a long life. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just hours going by on a clock unless we're there for it. Unless we have moments, right. you know, every moment is a chance to either be alive or to be something else and somewhere else. And, and so to think of experiences rather than performance and, you know, a, and a wedding is like the, the archetypal thing that could be either. Like I, you know, I kind of, blew, I feel like having another wedding just to do, get it right. But I, I remember <laughs> experiencing being in the room during the birth of my two children. And I was there. Like, I remember, right. you know, every, uh, every sight, sound, smell, emotion. And yet, s s how much of my life do I have in the bank in, 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 terms of, uh, in terms of that level of presence? Very, very few. Yeah, I think it's really, really interesting. And I think to take that and apply it to, you know, these various elements of our lives. So, you know, you have a speech to give. That's the ultimate performance in some way. But we all know people who've given speeches where it's, it's, it's perfectly delivered and falls sort of flat and we forget what they said versus people who are actually up there having a real, real authentic conversation with the audience and how much more impactful the other one is. And it's, um, you know, performance is almost never as appealing as reality. And reality comes from your willingness to experience something. So it's, you know, I'm not saying be unprepared. Um, be fully prepared, but really fully feel and experience the moment. And then, you know, what are the things that knock us down? Humiliation, failure, you know, uncertainty in those moments, if it's not a performance, but it's an experience, you could take that risk as a leader, as a person, take that risk and then be able to say, Oh, huh, I'm feeling humiliated right now. So that's what humiliation feels like. That's so interesting. Right. And I mean, I know I'm making like a little light of it, but the reality is 
that humiliation is a feeling like anything else. And how many times do we not move forward? How many actions do we not take for fear of humiliation, which is sort of, you know, one of the worst things that you can feel. Mm -hmm. And when you feel it and you go, that's what it feels like, suddenly you have much more freedom to take action and take risk, which is what you need to do as a leader. Right. And, and that comes back to what we were talking about um, early on in, in this conversation around when you were asking me, like, what would I say to a young person who failed at their swim meet? And my answers were predicated on not wanting to feel their humiliation. And if I, you know, if I become comfortable with my own, then I'm much more available to other people who are, who are in pain. If I if I if I'm if I right. felt it, I don't need to block them out and pretend that they're having a different experience than they're really having. And that's what four seconds is all about, right? Four seconds is all about taking a deep breath and expanding the choice that you have to take action. And if we are afraid of feeling things, then we limit the choices that we have to take action. So you know, there are certain choices available to me if I'm afraid of feeling their humiliation. There's certain choices and the choices are basically limited to what do I need to do to make them feel better so that they, I don't have to experience their feeling bad. But if, if I can expand what I am comfortable with, right? If I could take a deep breath and, and, and live with whatever's there in that moment, then I can expand the choices that I have to act in that particular situation. And ultimately, we become much more powerful when we have expansive choices about what moves to make next. And we get that by taking a deep breath and making, making a different kind of choice. Beautiful. So there's a lot more I want to follow up with. Um, I think it's for another, another time, another interview. I was really struck by the two words that you keep applying to leadership, risk and choice. And I would love to talk to you about not just the book, but about your work with leaders. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll table that for, for another call, hopefully soon. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? Uh, no, I, I would be happy to have those conversations with you. And, and I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it. And it's always a joy, uh, Howie, you know, as a friend and, and, and in doing work together to um, have these kinds of conversations because I, I love the way you think about it and I love the work that you do uh, and, you know, around, around health and, uh, and, you know, the capacity to get people to make really smart choices yourself. So it's a, it's a good match with four seconds. Yep, I've been, uh, I've been jonesing for this, for this interview for, for a long time because, you know, I've learned so much from you. Um, you know, you really are one of the huge influences in my life and my career. And so any chance I have to, to share your wisdom with the world is a, a huge honor. So, Peter, great talking to you and uh, catch up with you soon. I look forward to it. Bye. Well, I hope you found that interview useful, inspiring, entertaining. And remember, you can pre-order four seconds uh, comes out on February 24th, 2015. If you can't wait, you can get a lot more of Peter's writing and videos at his website, peterbregman.com. You can also check out 18 Minutes, um, the book that I mentioned at the very beginning. Um, and if you're in a leadership position at work, uh, Point B, his first book, is really quite valuable. I wanted to let you know about a new direction that I'm planning on adding to the podcast, which is Q&A. So, you know, for many years, I've had this secret desire to be kind of the uh, healthy living equivalent of car talk. And with the passing um, last week of, of Tom, one of the car talk brothers, it uh, got me thinking even more about how much useful information and joy and laughter those guys brought to the world. So I'm going to ramp up slowly. I don't know anything about uh, live radio call in, but I want to take some questions and answer them myself if I can or uh, get guests on to, uh, to answer them with me. So if you go to plantyourself.com slash ask, that's A-S-K, all lowercase, 
you can ask questions. And there's two ways to do it. I have a little Google Voice Call Me icon. You can click that and it will connect you to a voicemail where you can leave the question. And if you do that, um, I'll probably play it on the air. So you know, leave out any details you don't want shared publicly. Or just below that is a Google Docs form where you can type your question. And if I think it's a question that enough people will be interested in, I will answer it on the air in an upcoming podcast. And if you uh, leave some contact information uh, in the form, I can let you know via email if and when that will be posted. Um, again, remember, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to be able to answer specific medical questions about your case. And in fact, most doctors wouldn't answer specific questions about your case. We can talk about general things. The, you know, what's really in my wheelhouse is behavior, is helping you figure out how to implement things that you kind of know you already want to do. So those are the best questions to ask me. But really, if you have any question, burning question about health, about whatever, you know, I've got a pretty good network of allies who are, uh, well, they're not standing by, but maybe I can coax them on to, uh, to answer a question or two. So again, that's plantyourself.com ask. I look forward to being with you all again next time. Be well, my friends.